everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. It's James Rudd, the digital media editor here at Heart. Today, I have the great pleasure of interviewing Professor Paul Cowra from Portsmouth Hospital. Paul is the lead investigator on the Ironman study, and we have a great discussion about the study that broke at the AHA in November 2022 and is published in The Lancet, and there are links to the publication in the show notes. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by the Boehringer Ingelheim Lilly Alliance, uh, but they had no influence whatsoever over the contents, uh, selection of speakers or organization of the podcast or any associated educational material. I hope you enjoyed the discussion about Iron Man and the use of iron in heart failure. And please leave us a review, a like, a comment, anything like that you can do in the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us to reach new listeners. Thanks very much. If we can start by having you introduce yourself for the heart audience, um, who are you, where do you work, and what do you do there? So hello, my name's uh, Paul Cowra. I'm a consultant cardiologist and heart failure specialist in Portsmouth Hospital's University NHS Trust on the south coast of England. I'm a clinician, but also uh, involved in academic work, and I've been the chief investigator for a UK-based study called Ironman that was funded by the British Heart Foundation. And Paul, I really wanted to get you on to discuss this study because it was one of the late-breaking trials at the recent AHA meeting. And um, maybe you can start off by setting the scene a little bit for us and tell us about what's known about iron deficiency and heart failure before you started the Ironman trial. What, what's in the guidelines right now about iron and heart failure? Yeah, so I think for approximately two decades now, we've recognized that iron deficiency is common in patients with heart failure, irrespective of ejection fraction. Um, the definition that's become widely used for iron deficiency is worth considering, and, and that's a ferritin of less than 100, or if it's 100 to 299, a transferred saturation of less than 20%. And that would be different to what many people would recognize as a ferritin of, of less than 30 or WHO less than 15. And that's because heart failure is a chronic inflammatory disease with some similarities to chronic kidney disease. And with that, there tends to be upregulation of, of, of ferritin. So you can have iron deficiency despite a ferritin being above 30. And we believe that one of the main reasons why patients develop iron deficiency with heart failure is the inflammation uh, causing upregulation of a protein called hepcidin produced by the liver, which impedes absorption of iron from the diet, but also impedes mobilization of iron from the reticular endothelial stores to where it's required. I think many people, when you're discussing the concept of iron deficiency, understand the importance of iron towards hemoglobin and oxygen carriage and delivery. However, I think it's perhaps less widely appreciated that iron's very important for other bodily functions and in particular oxidative phosphorylation and thereby mitochondrial functions are involved in producing the energy that cells need to deliver their work. And so I think when we're talking about iron deficiency, it's beyond hemoglobin. This is iron deficiency um, that can occur in patients who are anemic or non-anemic. And when we look at that definition of iron deficiency, if you look at outpatient cohorts of so-called stable heart failure, the prevalence is around about 30 to 50% of patients, depending upon the age of that cohort. If you've got patients hospitalized with decompensated heart failure, perhaps closer to 75%. Wow, huge problem then. 
absolutely. And a number of cohort studies have consistently shown that when iron deficiency is present, irrespective of hemoglobin, it's an independent predictor of impaired exercise capacity, impaired quality of life, and a higher risk of hospitalization for heart failure and premature death. And so really, the first large-scale publication was back in 2009, the FairHF study, uh, that demonstrated correction with intravenous ferric carboxymaltose over 24 weeks. Um, that's in a double-blind trial, demonstrated improvements in quality of life. A subsequent trial called the CONFIRM trial, again double-blind, using ferric carboxymaltose, demonstrated in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, an improvement in exercise capacity as compared to uh, placebo. And it was really building on these data that we designed Ironman that was to use a different intravenous iron product, ferric derisomaltose, but look at hard endpoints, that is looking at heart failure, hospitalization, and cardiovascular death. And you used a different formulation. Can you tell us why you decided to do that and what the advantage of yours was potentially over the previous compounds studied? Yeah, so I, th- I think the different iron products have, uh, they're, they're both of these are high-dose ions, ferric carboxymaltose and ferric derisomaltose. There have been increasing data for ferric carboxymaltose has been incorporated into the guidelines, and it's been very important to understand whether it was unique to that or it was more general IV iron. Ferric derisomaltose used in this trial, you can give high-dose intravenous iron that's based according to patient's weight and hemoglobin, but uh, 20 milligrams per kilogram up to two grams of IV iron, and that's over 30 minutes. So in terms of when considering IV iron replacement for the NHS um, or other healthcare systems around the world, being able to give us uh, iron replacement with a single dose of intravenous iron is very attractive. Got you. Okay. And for Ironman itself, then, if we move on to the the trial that uh, we're here to discuss in detail, uh, can you talk about the population that you studied, inclusion and exclusion criteria, if possible? Yeah, so important to reflect that the first patient randomized was 2016. And so we we had at that time point building upon the data out there, we included patients with an ejection fraction less than or equal to 45%. So this is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and some with mildly reduced according to the more recent uh, definition. Um, You could be included by one of three pathways, um, either a patient hospitalized with heart failure, expected to survive to discharge, a recent hospitalization for heart failure within the last six months, or if it was neither of those, then an elevated natriuretic peptide level, which was different for atrial fibrillation as compared to sinus rhythm. We use slightly different cuts of um, iron deficiency. There's still a bit of debate as to the value of ferritin, and and perhaps the the main benefit comes from TSAT, but we used a TSAT of less than 20% or a ferritin of less than 100. And the exclusion criteria, we we excluded patients with a hemoglobin of less than 9 grams per deciliter. And the rationale for that was we felt that investigators would be uncomfortable not doing something at a very low hemoglobins. Um, in difference to the previous studies, and having taken feedback from patients, researchers, and also uh, funders, we did this as a probe design. So it's very difficult to do a double-blind study with intravenous iron, which is dark brown. You need the patients to be blinded. They have to put their arm through a curtain and convince them not to look what's behind the curtain. 
Um, and for every patient visit, you need a blinded research team and an unblinded research team to conduct it. So it's pretty labor intensive. We were expecting a long duration of follow-up, and that's something very important. The studies that had gone before with ferric carboxymaltose treatment had been out to a maximum of a year. And really, um, it, we felt it was important to have a longer-term follow-up of patients for safety as well as e- e- efficacy. And can you tell us about the actual study design then? So you've, you've talked about inclusion, exclusion. Um, it was a multi-center study, I'm assuming, UK-based? Yeah, UK-based, it was uh, across 70 centres uh, in the end. Um, and it started recruitment in late 2016. And it was event-driven study. Okay. And the trial was still going on when at the start of 2020 when COVID hit. So we had a real challenge from late March 2020. We had 91% of the final patient population recruited at that time. Um, so the final population was 1137. But as you may remember, in, in the UK, we had periods of lockdown where well, people were not allowed to leave uh, houses or also only for, for short exercise. But there were periods of time when uh, patients were not permitted to come in person uh, for research visits. And even when it was opened up, we found that many patients were reluctant to come up to secondary care. And different to a tablet-based trial, that this was randomized one-to-one intravenous iron versus optimal care versus optimal care alone. And of course, what you need for the intravenous iron arm is to be seeing patients, assessing their iron status and redosing as necessary. So we can mention we, we did some COVID sensitivity analyses. Yeah. The design of the trial was randomized. They got IV iron. That was corrected. They was, everyone was seen at four weeks. They were redosed if they were iron deficient again, and that was according to a ferritin of less than 100, and but a slightly higher TSAT, less than 25%. The rationale for that is if something's bad for you, which a low TSAT seems to be, do you really want to be waiting for it to be very low again uh, before topping up? So 25% seemed a very reasonable a- approach to that. And then they were seen at four months and four monthly. And how long was the trial? How long did you define the, the follow-up to be if if COVID hadn't happened, say? What was the original plan? Yeah, so the original plan, because it was event-driven, it was a, the primary endpoint was a combination of cardiovascular death and recurrent heart failure hospitalizations. It's hard to do uh, the powering for recurrent heart failure hospitalizations. So it was powered on first hospitalization and we needed uh, around about 370 first events. We, we got that in the end, but that took till uh, early 2022. So we had almost two years of, of COVID influencing the trial. So we also had a, a COVID sensitivity analysis that fits with the recommendations of the EMA and the FDA for trials that were conducted during COVID. And um, that was to censor patients who were recruited by the start of the first UK lockdown, which was 91% of the cohort, but followed their data for another six months. And the reason for that is once you've corrected iron deficiency, it's uncommon to need redosing in the next six six months. We also had some post hoc sensitivity analysis that were requested by one of the reviewers for the, the paper. And so I think we can justify perhaps discussing those because it's it hasn't been fishing on our part. It was it was something we were requested. It was requested, yeah. 
So let's um, do no more dancing around the main results then. So can you talk about, you mentioned briefly the total number of patients recruited, which was around 1,100, but can you talk about the main results of the trial and then we'll discuss the sensitivity analysis afterwards? So the main results of the trial, we had a, a rate ratio of 0.82. So for those that are less familiar with that, that's an 18% reduction um, in that risk of the primary endpoint with ferric derisomaltose as compared to standard care. However, the p-value was 0.07. So that the p-value, as people will understand, is about what the chances of this happening by chances. Um, since Ironman started, it's important to say there was another trial called a firm that was published in 2020, again with ferric carboxymaltose, looking specifically at patients who were hospitalized with heart failure pre-discharged with iron deficiency, treated out to 24 weeks, and every patient was followed up for a maximum of a year. And that found very similar uh, findings. They found a reduction in the same primary endpoint that has the, the rate ratio, I beg your pardon, was 0.76, a p-value of just over 0.05. So uh, I think that's helpful mm-hmm. because the consistency of benefit is is very very similar they were affected by covid too yeah important to say whilst all patients in a firm were followed up for a year in ironman the median follow was 2.6 years so from a, we can discuss safety from, from that perspective but that's been very important and let's talk also about this covid sensitivity analysis that we set up before in terms of uh, patients whose journey through the trial was affected by covid what what was the result of that analysis so for the same primary endpoint, the rate ratio was 0.76, so a greater reduction, 24% reduction. The p-value now goes the right side of 0.05, so 0.047. And again, that's pretty consistent with a COVID analysis from a firm. And I, I refer back to the was it's only 15% of the Ironman population were recruited in hospital, which is good because we've got a much broader range to add on to a firm. But I think that the, the consistency of the rate ratios is, 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 I think, a very good find when you look look at the totality of the data here. We were asked to, to do a COVID sensitivity analysis where all patients in the COVID cohort had their data censored at a year to permit us to compare to the AFFIRM trial. And it's interesting, when we looked at that, the rate ratio was 0.66, um, so 34% reduction with a p-value of 0.011. Okay, very interesting. So again, that taking those two trials together seems to be certainly highly suggestive, doesn't it? And you just wonder whether, I'm sure you've got plans perhaps to combine some of the data and do a, a larger uh, meta-analysis of the two trials. But what's your view now, Prof, as, as a real expert in this field on the sort of totality of evidence for intravenous iron in this population? And then maybe we can also talk about the role, if any, for oral iron, because clearly that would be easier for patients. Building on the data over the last decade or so, and looking, reflecting on the ESC guidelines from 2021, I I think there are convincing data that intravenous iron makes patients feel better, uh, at least in the short term, and have a better exercise capacity. And when you speak to patients with heart failure, they're too good priorities that they're thereafter and that's been incorporated into the 2021 guidelines so the guidelines tell us at the moment to use iron for symptomatic relief don't they in patients with 
Ejection um, fraction less than or equal to 45%. Yeah. In, in, in those guidelines in 21 pre-Ironman specified ferric carboxymaltose. Okay. Because that, the only data were for, for that. Uh, the other thing that they specify in it, I think this is fundamental, is it's important to check iron status periodically in patients with heart failure. So, and of course, if you don't check it, you ain't going to find it know. and you ain't going to consider treating it. And um they also included the affirmed data. So if patients had had a hospitalization and an ejection fraction less than 50%, then ferric carboxymaltose could be considered to reduce rehospitalization. I think the Ironman data build on that and extend it to a population who have, you know, not had a recent hospitalization and under outpatients. And of course, bring in the data for a second uh, intravenous iron, i.e. ferric derisomaltose. So the, the one thing I didn't mention about Ironman was the safety. And there's been some discussion about the potential risks of intravenous iron and bacterial infection. Um, so bacteria need iron to replicate. Actually, the upregulation of hepcidin is probably thought to be an innate mechanism to protect against bacterial in, in infection, sequestering iron when inflammations was about many, many years ago. Um, there was a study in dialysis patients called Pivotal that looked at high versus low dose iron and found no excessive infections. In Ironman, all patients had uh, hospitalized, all hospitalizations and all deaths were blindly adjudicated. That's important to, to, to mention. And there was no excess risk of, of hospitalization due to infection or death with intravenous iron. When you look at the MEDRA classification of SAEs, there were no excess risks um, with intravenous iron. And in fact, there were statistically fewer cardiovascular SAEs with intravenous iron. So I think this gives us good safety data. So for me, as well as the quality of life data, I feel comfortable now speaking to patients when you're discussing the pros and cons, that is that this seems to be a safe option, but in addition to the benefits on quality of life and exercise capacity, a reduction in the risk of heart failure hospitalization. And can you just briefly mention um, other trials that are going on? And I think there are two other studies, aren't there, that are continuing that are potentially larger than even than Ironman? Yeah, so I think the, the larger one will be heart fit, uh, which is originally in the US, again, looking at ferric carboxymaltose ejection fractions of less than 40% all outpatients. It, it has got a primary endpoint that's a little bit different. It's similar to a win ratio primary endpoint. But again, all patients have followed up to a year. So it, it I think these will find complementary data, but 3000 patients, that's extended outside to some areas within Europe and uh, Australia, New, New Zealand. We're expecting that the latter part of this year, actually. The one thing we're uncertain on is, is what's the impact on cardiovascular death? So a firm, very little difference at one year. There was only three deaths difference between the arms. Uh, Ironman, it didn't reach statistical significance, but there were numerically fewer cardiovascular deaths in Ironman with a separation of the curves. So I think heart fit would help in that respect as a bigger trial. And I think uh, continuing from what you alluded to earlier, that a, an individual patient meta-analysis of those three trials afterwards sounds a very attractive yeah. option because these, these are still 
compared to some of the huge trials we've been lucky to have in heart failure are still relatively small trials, even at four figures. And just to finish off, I know you mentioned earlier about um, absorption of iron, maybe one of the mechanisms in heart failure as to why the levels go low. I'm assuming there's no role currently for for oral iron preparations uh, for this indication. Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. And the data that we have to date suggests no benefit. And and that's really based on a a trial called Iron Out, which was a US-based trial from Boston run by Greg, Greg Lewis. And that showed certainly over a short period of time, no improvements in VO2 with oral iron versus placebo. There are some advances in the oral iron field with some new drugs out that are thought to have better absorption. Now, I think this is it's interesting when I speak to patients about this because one might anticipate that the thoughts of an infusion might put patients off. But actually, when you've got drug patients that are very least are on the four foundation therapies, typically on diuretics, loop diuretics as well, with comorbidities, often several other drugs, actually an intravenous iron infusion seems quite attractive, particularly if it, it's something that isn't needing frequent right. uh, re- repetition. And so whilst, yes, of course, the, the ease to the healthcare of giving another drug is attractive, that for patients, um, the intravenous iron may actually be something that they find quite attractive. Yeah, particularly as I imagine it's probably more than once a day, isn't it, with oral iron? So, uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, there's interest actually in, in in about even when we're using it outside of heart failure oral iron. There's some data um, perhaps suggesting that that using it every other day may be slightly better absorption because when you take oral iron, you stimulate hepcidin. Uh, up reg- regulation. So if you're using oral iron, then I think it's important to educate patients to take it on an empty stomach. And there's some uh, data to suggest taking it with vitamin C, so with orange juice, may enhance its absorption. And I think, as is often the case, we're not so good at advising patients specifically how to take their drugs. Absolutely. Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Professor Cowra, about the Ironman study. I will put a link to the Lancet paper in the show notes so everybody can go ahead and read that. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time today in discussing the study. Thank you very much, James. 